All right, Steph, I've got a question for you. What's your favorite book of all time? Uh, obviously, you met her where? Oh, I thought you were going to say the Bible. Oh, oops. <laughs> oh. What's your second favorite book of all time? You met her where? <laughs> <laughs> a distant second. Totally distant. It's a pretty good book. Sorry, God. It's still a pretty, pretty good was. book. But we're so excited. Where can people get our book, honey? Okay, I know this. Uh, Amazon.com. Yes. Barnes & Noble. Yes, and? And our website, KevinStuff.com. And, and what happens if they buy it off our website? <gasps> what do they get? Uh, an autograph from us. Yes. Who wouldn't want that? So, listeners, if you've already read the book, thank you so much. We've had such good feedback. One thing that helps us, if you can give us a review on Amazon.com, we would greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much, and thank you for listening. Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of Tell Us a Good Story. Here is part one of our conversation with Philip Hall, who used to be an enforcer with the Italian Mafia. This was a conversation where Steph and I were like, I cannot believe what I am hearing. Hope you enjoy this episode of Tell Us a Good Story, Italian Mafia Edition. Friends, we want to encourage you, wherever you listen to this, please subscribe right now so this content will come to you. If you haven't already, we also want to encourage you to rate or even write a review for us on Apple Podcasts. This would help us out more than you know. And if you enjoy this podcast, would you mind sharing on social media and invite others to be part of our community here? If you tag one of us or our business page, then we can then even repost it. We are so thankful to you for listening and sharing with your friends and family. All right, Steph. Welcome to episode 61. Oh, you guys, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. I'm so excited about this. You you can barely handle yourself. I, for the last half hour, my heart has been pounding (laughs) about this conversation. Well, I've got a feeling this is going to be pretty epic. Pretty incredible. Oh, you guys, I cannot wait for this. Well, friends, our next guest used to be a street gangster and an enforcer for the Italian mafia. He actually told me over the phone, Steph, he's been shot three times. Oh, it's not good. Has seven knife wounds <laughs> and a plate in his head. Oh, my I'm, God. I'm not making this up, folks. This is amazing. However, he's now an author, public speaker, and trains law enforcement on the techniques criminals use against the police. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to tell us a good story, Mr. Philip Hall. Oh, Philip. Hey, I'm thank so you excited. Uh, forget about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm happy to be here. Oh, I love that. Well, that first so of all, good. yes, thank you for saying yes to yes. us. It is an honor on our end to get to talk to you because we are fascinated by your story, your background, Philip. So thank you for saying yes to us here in Columbus, Ohio. Yeah, and I got to thank uh, Joe Serio out there, man. If it wasn't for him, this connection would be, wouldn't happen. But he's really on a strong platform, and I like what we're doing out here. Uh, yes. Joe's amazing. So let's let's talk about how we actually connect with you yes. because it's very interesting. So Philip, we've had probably five, six guests over the past year who have said, "Hey, I had a lot of fun. You should talk to my buddy, this person, mm-hmm. right? Or you should talk to her, or whatever, right?" And that's kind of what happened with our friend Joe Serio. He had sent me an email and said, "Hey, if you need any other guest, 
I just met someone who is you know involved with Italian mafia. He might be a good person to talk to. And I was like, okay. I'm like, Joe, I trust you. You know, if, if you vetted him, that's fine. Go ahead. And so, you know, he sends me another email, Philip. And he's like, hey, talk to Philip. He said, yeah, he's interested in doing this. He, he listened to your podcast or watched a video clip or something. He's interested. I'm like, great. So, Philip, Joe sends me your bio, okay? Your bio. I then read your bio here in my home <laughs> office, okay? Your bio, the very first sentence says, Philip Hall was an enforcer and soldier in the Italian mob. He was involved in extortion, debt collection, and drug and weapons trafficking. And let me tell you, Philip, I literally out loud said, oh, crap. <laughs> what did we just get ourselves into? Okay. So we are here in the Midwest, Philip, and I'm like, okay, is he bugging our phones? Is he, he's probably doing a background check on us right now. And then I'm thinking, okay, is somebody going to be following me to work tomorrow? Like, Again, I'm, I'm kind of getting nervous, okay? So then I keep reading down the bio. I get to the end, and it says, In 2007, Philip was able to turn his life around by the grace of God. He formed a relationship with Christ and speaks around the country to churches, inmates, and students. And immediately, I'm like, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> we are safe. She <laughs> so got all We're the safe. bad stuff first. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so then my wife got home, and uh, you had called me a few days later just to, just to connect with me. And when Steph got home... She's, I told her, I was like, listen, I, I reached out or I, I had a conversation with Philip Paul and she's like, how'd it go? <laughs> I'm like, he sounded, he sounded fine. Like, he sounded very cool. He's got an amazing story and he didn't threaten me over the phone. So I think we're, we're, I think good. we're good here. We're good. I think, I think we're good. Wow. So. You know, I feel the same way on the other end. I'm checking, are these guys investigating me? Are they, <laughs> I mean, I have to talk to Tim and it is strange, you know, how we come from drastically different parts of the world, yes. but I'm so honored and all praise and glory to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because without him, I am a dead man. And the common denominator, no matter what the math is, is Jesus Christ. And and that's what I'm happy about. And, and I'm excited to, to be out here. And I've gotten to see some of the stuff that you guys are doing. And uh, I'm, I'm honored to, to help support and see this only grow bigger. Oh, There's a lot you. of good stories and I've been blessed to meet a lot of people. Oh, thank you, Philip. We appreciate that. So to start off, we're curious, how does someone get involved in organized crime? Is it a rough childhood? Is it a background of getting involved with gangs as a teenager? How does someone even get involved in this type of life, right? In organized crime? Not that Steph or I are interested we're or not volu- taking, we're, we're not, not volunteering here. notes or anything, but, <laughs> but I'm curious, how did you start into this as, I guess, a teenager, Philip? Well, first I, I auditioned, um, <laughs> filled out my application, sent it into the local mob union. Uh, and they called me up and said, Hey, we can use a guy like you. Um, <laughs> that's a big question. Uh, take your pick. You know, I took to the streets at a young age uh, due to the, the chaos and the violence in my home. And if you have to believe there's an old country song, I talked to Tim about this every once in a while, yeah, uh, looking for love in all the wrong places. Uh, if you do not find or have love at home, you will go find it. You will look for it. And the streets were waiting there with open arms. Um, so it started in my childhood, I would say, and uh to fathers and, and mothers and, and single or together, uh, big brothers, big sisters out there, uh, take note, take that to heart. Uh, the seeds we sow into our young uh, due to that violence and 
due to the anger that was in my house, I'm the oldest of six kids, you know. Okay. Uh, my father's a retired Vietnam vet. Um, I'm not picking on my pops, but uh, when he came back from Vietnam, uh, anybody I'd imagine who comes back from war, well, he brought some junk with him. Uh, he was a recon specialist, so his job was to kill. Mm. And um, he did it well, and well enough that it, it destroyed his life. And he had a lot of anger, uh, a lot of um, just junk, and, and he brought that home. And he had no place to put it, uh, so he put it on us. So what age did you start getting involved, I guess, with gangs then on the street um, where you lived? They were always in the neighborhood. Okay. Uh, we were in, in inner city Denver, uh, west side, and they they were always prevalent. They were they were on all the corners. Um, street gangs that back then we we were outside a lot too. Right. It wasn't like today. And I would say I was about eight years old when I really started to notice how much power they had in the neighborhood. And if you if you hung with them or around their crowd, you were protected. Uh, okay. I was easily influenced by, by guys who were probably, I would call it recruiting now that I know uh, what I didn't know then. Um, and I didn't want to be home. I didn't, uh, when pops got drunk and, and the beaten start or whatever it is he was going to do that night, uh, I'd went outside and, you know, I made friends out there. Right. Um, and, and I saw that strength. Uh, I started drinking when I was about, when I was probably about seven or eight. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I used to drive my my grandfather at eight years old. I used to drive him to the liquor store. He taught me how to drive. So there's generational curses. He wasn't my dad's dad. He was on my mom's side. Okay. My, my uncles were rolled with bikers. Um, there were the, the Hells Angels were around, uh, Sons of Silence, Banditos. Uh, so that was, to me, an everyday thing. I, I saw these on the street. I saw these people. But we lived there. So not being an outsider, you kind of automatically accepted uh, into a street life. Um, so you, so you grew up with violence around, whether it's your father, whether it's being around these bikers, whether it's your neighborhood. So that I mean, literally, you grew up in that type of. That was your normal, unfortunately. Yeah. See, you call it violence. Um, no, that was normal. I'm playing throwing football with with the Hell's Angels here. I'm I'm these are our older brothers, these are our families. Um and the rule in the street which probably enticed me more was tough. Uh the bottom line is you got to be tough. And so there's there's a pecking order. Right. And and I didn't mind that pecking order. Um my household though was different. Um my pops he he was just having it rough. He he tried to join the the state patrol when he got out of Vietnam and he was too short and didn't weigh enough. So they rejected him and he was mad at the world cause he didn't die when he was in Vietnam. Mm. Um, all his buddies are dead. Uh, he, he just, he brought so much back and he didn't know where to put it, but I was learning from that. Um, he was teaching me martial arts and how to fight. I mean, at five, five years old and my brothers behind me, um, he had to settle for a job working, uh, as uh, he'd drive the, a hearse for a, a place called Olinger's Mortuary. He'd go pick the bodies up from wherever they passed away and take them to the mortuary. But on the way, sometimes he'd bring them home. And he would get us outside, me the boys, and, and get you over there and, and show you the body and then show you to touch it 
and to see it's dead. This is what death is like. So if you ever get in that situation and this person ends up like this, they're already in heaven or someplace, okay? So you don't have to worry about it. This is death. You don't have to be afraid of death. And, man, I was I had nightmares for a long time. I bet. He was, this was in preparation. And it's funny how where I see where I'm at now and where I ended, all those things were yucky. But all those tools saved my life. Mm. Wow. So at what point then did you get involved with organized crime? Were you a teenager? Were you an adult? How did that, when did that take place, Philip? Um, I was run with the warlords uh, about eight. I, I got officially jumped in. Um, uh, probably, I think I was around 14, 15 years old. What does it mean to be jumped in? Okay, there's, there's three ways that a lot of gangs do them. And then okay. back then, you could get uh, you could get jumped in, and that would be where the leader picks about four to five toughest guys he's got. And some gangs do a different. You, some gangs you can defend yourself while these five beat on you until the leader says stop. Or in some, in other gangs, you have to take the beating until the leader says stop, which could put you in the hospital. But if you could live through it or survive it and and want more then welcome aboard what we want uh, another way was called jacking and you would go they would drop you off at a gas station in the evening and you would position yourself in the back of somebody's car while they went to pay and oh. when they drove off you had to rob them and steal the car and the other way was they drive around and look for somebody random and they pick you to go out, and you'd have to go just go to work on that person, just beat them up until the leader said stop. And for me, uh, they drove around. They went, took me to a bar downtown. Here I'm, I believe, was 14, 15 years old. And uh, he points out a big bouncer in front of a bar, and he says, "That's your target." And so you want to be a warlord, and that was the name of the crew was the warlords. Uh, that's what you got to go. You're guaranteed to win. I was real close with the leader of the warlords. He, he was like my big brother. He was like, I, I, I wanted to be president of the warlords. And so I jumped and got out of the car and I'm going to walk into this mountain of a guy and he says, Hey, what's up little man. And I just start running at him and start swinging and, and fighting and swinging and swinging. And the next thing, the whole crew was on top of him. And then they beat this dude up and I jumped in the car and, uh, they're opening beers and handing me beers and congratulations poured on top of me. Uh, now you're a warlord. And, and so I started running with them guys pretty solid for a while. Wow. That was not how I was going to guess jumping in <laughs> was referred to. Jeez. <laughs> That's There's... incredible. Like what a tough life. Oh my gosh. See, okay, but so, it wasn't tough. And, and, and I guess that's where I have a, a tough time understand. To me, it was normal. And um, when I, I see good people like you, and I look and I'm like, and, and your wife looks like she's going to, uh, she's got something to say, and you guys, I was I'm on the big. edge of my seat. No, Philip. I'm like, For, I just can't. I'm like, I'm just like this. She is redlining over here. I have to keep turning her down because she's so excited, Philip. It's a beautiful thing, too, because I look at what I missed out. Uh, and I have this conversation with with Tim Lowry a lot because uh, he's a beautiful father to his kids and protected them well. And I'm like, man, you know, there's there could have been 
happy and, and good like that. Um, but I guess it was tough. But to me, it was an everyday thing, you know, to get a beat down or take a beating was nothing. What was it like to come home all bloody and bruised? Did your parents question it or did they just look and be like, okay, no big deal? Oh, no, no, no. You, you throw the shirt away. You clean up before you come home. Uh, okay. If you, if you got an idea or ruined a shirt that dad worked hard for, um, you in trouble. And you don't bring home any instigation that you were in a fight because you better have won the fight. There was no talk in my house of, hey, how'd you do in Philip today? How did you do in school? Uh, let's sit down and look at your homework for the day. Uh, how did you do in sports? None of that happened. It was, um, did you win? Did you get in trouble? I better not get another call. Um, stuff like that. And uh, and that was with my dad. But um, I don't blame him for it. Uh, and sometimes I thank him for it because we were in a war in the streets. And, and you don't realize it till you get away from it. Right. And he had gotten a better job, and he finally made it onto the Denver Fire Department. And he moved us eight miles west out of Denver into Jefferson County, Lakewood, if anybody's familiar with that. And it's a much nicer neighborhood. My friends on the streets thought we hit the lot over something. <laughs> and it was just a better neighborhood, but it was different kids. Right. And in my third grade, I remember... Uh, going to this new neighborhood, and and then again, I had the fear. Oh my gosh, this is, I got to make new. I got to fight my way in again. And these kids weren't like that. And the first kid that I met, his name was Bob Lee. Uh, he was a Vietnamese guy, and one of my best friends from my old neighborhood uh, was Victor, and he was uh, from Vietnam. And Bob came up, and he was happy. And his first thing is, hi, how are you doing? Welcome to our school. And before he could finish, man, I busted his mouth and his teeth oh, no. and his nose, and I just kept hitting him. And I was like, what's your angle, man? You ain't going to get me. And uh, it was it was a bad first day of school for me. Um, <laughs> and him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, and him. Uh, I just didn't understand their the, the kindness that was there. That just freaked me out. Really? Um I remember uh, my dad didn't let us go have like sleepovers. Uh, we couldn't stay at anybody's house. And um, I didn't understand why, but one time as uh, my parents were separating the stuff, my mom said, yeah, go stay with your buddy. Uh, and I went to my friend Kirk's house. And I remember looking in their kitchen and they had all these different cereal boxes and everybody had their own cereal uh, with, you know, a character on it. And I remember coming home and looking at my mom, Ma, why are all our cereal boxes the same color? They're black and white, and they, we just get flakes. I mean, I, I don't understand that. And I didn't know that I was hurting hurting her and mm. my dad because they were struggling to give us. And that was why they didn't want us going sometimes to the to the other. Okay. And there were some comical moments. I mean, I had there were a lot of Christian people uh, in this new community. Not that they weren't in my community. I just wasn't rolling with them yeah but i remember my buddy's mom asked me uh what religion i was and uh i said i, I don't know uh i think we're prostitutes and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and she said excuse me and I said, yeah we're prostitutes and so i get home and my mom she's like what are you doing telling the neighbors and the kids at school we're prostitutes please don't say that and i said mom well, we are and she goes no we're protestant protestant and i said oh the same thing right it's no <laughs> so, completely different 
So we was a little confused going uh, in our in our new neighborhood, but so from your teens, right? How do you end up with the Italian mob? When we were running in our neighborhoods, I was okay. getting on our bicycles. Uh, we did a lot of stealing. There was a lot of fighting in the gangs, and a lot of stealing was was theft was a big thing. Uh, car stereos, whatever you could you could get your hands on, and they would set up. Uh, some of the gangsters would set up like our group. The warlords had a booth in something called a flea market or a swap meet. Okay, and uh, all the merchandise we'd take, we he would sell them. Uh, and, and we'd all get a little piece. Um, and in that new neighborhood I was at was like a gold mine because it was the kind of neighborhood that nobody locked the doors, garage doors were open. You probably bought your tools back from me somewhere down the line. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> that's what our thing was. And uh, when I was little, I loved collecting uh, baseball cards and football cards. You know, right. I, was, I was a sports fanatic. And I just didn't like paying for them. So uh, we would take our my little group of guys that I was running with and hit different strip malls in the surrounding communities. And in this one particular area, there was a, a strip mall, and it read like uh, Giovanni's Supermarket, Giovanni's uh, Hardware Store, Giovanni's Bakery, Giovanni's Restaurant. You kind of get where I'm going. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't care who Giovanni was and didn't know. And at that age, I didn't even know what the word mafia was. I, I never knew what that was. No term, no nothing. Uh-huh. So we hit the superfood store, and we'd hit it every few weeks. And my buddies would go in and talk to the clerks. They were elderly women. And one of us, we would take turns stuffing our pockets and filling everything we could with whatever we could, candy and, and um, football cards. And this one particular time... I'm stuffing my pockets. It's my turn. And this voice uh, I hear talks over me and he says, hey, boy, what are you doing down there? And I look up and it's just this monster of a man and a big, giant, ugly guy. He's he's six foot plus. I mean, he's got to be six two. He's 400 pounds and some change. Oh, he's my a big man. And I said, hey, hey, old man, why don't you why don't you mind your own business? And he said, what are you doing? Are you stealing from me? I said, man, and I said, hey, guys, we got to go. We've been made. So I grab what I can, and we run out the door, and we all jump on our bicycles, and we're starting to exit the parking lot. And I remember stopping and looking back, and that big guy, I mean, he wasn't going to catch us. He comes out, and he's huffing and puffing and grabbing his knees at the edge of the sidewalk. And I remember looking back saying, you fat, you'll never catch me. I used a few choice words. You're right. <laughs> um, See, so you're never going to catch me. And I remember laughing, and, and I split. A year later, I had moved on into high school, and usually I, the warlords would come over and pick me up at school, and I'd roll okay. with them. I always hung with my inner city crowd. Um, I was about 15. I had seen enough. I had been in enough fights and stuff. I, I saw my best friend, Victor, uh, get killed at 15. Uh, he got mm. gunned down in a park on a, a drug deal that went bad, thanks to his older brother. Uh, but you have to buy the book to hear about that story but <laughs> i had seen uh all of these things before but i hadn't really been in any gun violence or nothing back then we took care of it with our fists for the most part okay um so about a year later i didn't get a ride home from the warlords and i and i walked home and 
part of my route was this Giovanni strip mall. And I remember walking through the front of the restaurants, and they had this bakery, man. And I, and I always smell. It was always fresh, uh, you know, pastries. And I loved looking at them. Uh, and I was just in daydreaming about them, walking along the front of the store. And as I was passing the restaurant, somebody grabs me. Bam! Yanks me out of my shoes. Bam! Slams my head on a wall. Oh, my. And I feel myself being drugged through a restaurant. I could see the tables and I'm passing through, but it was fast. And then I get to a back room and there's a brick wall and he slams my head against a brick wall and hits me in the face and I'm bleeding out my nose and he's shaking me and my feet are not on the ground. And then I see his eyes and he says, I'll never catch you, you fat. That's what you told me a year ago. And I was like, oh man. And uh, I remember just, whatever, man, let me go, let me go. And he goes, and he's shaking me. And he goes, um, I said, what are you going to do now? Call, call the cops on me? Are you going to call the police? And he said, man, are the cops going to pay me back all the money you stole from me? And I said, man, I'll do whatever. He goes, yeah, you're right. You're going to do whatever. Here's how you're going to pay me back. You're going to go home, tell your father what you did, and you're going to be here tonight. No, you'll be at a mall night with a pair of black pants, a white shirt, and you're going to go to work for me in this restaurant. That's how you're going to pay me back. Get out of here. And he starts slapping me around. I ran out. Whatever. All right. So I ran and I got out. I went home and uh, I never told my father what I did. I said, screw that. You know, I'm I'm taking another route home (laughs) from now on. (laughs) And I couldn't believe it had been a year. And that kind of tells you the mindset of organized criminal people who live in these lives there's many things i learned from his name was was uh, big john giovanni okay and so i didn't go to work for him the next day i avoided him and the following day uh when i had got home and uh from whatever it is i was doing i walk into my bedroom and on my bed is laying a pair of black pants and a white shirt what my pop busts in and he grabs me up and he says i don't know what you did, but I know who you did it to. You will be at work tonight. And, uh, whoa. So I went to work for John Giovanni as a, as a bus boy. Oh. Oh, no. my mouth is wide open right now. So, oh, my gosh. So how long were you a bus boy then before you ended up moving on to enforcer bus boy, right? <laughs> or whatever the next step is. But, um. I went to work for John, and he would keep my tips, and he would pay me my hourly wage, which I believe back then was like two dollars and ten cents or something. And I just did—I was a busboy for him, and I got to witness a lot of things in that restaurant. I, I did still didn't know nothing about mob, but I okay. noticed something about Big John. Big John had his own table in the restaurant that nobody sat at but Big John. Okay, he had a couple guys that would come and visit him before they opened up in the evenings and they would sit and I now I would say they look like you're, you're gangsters exactly what you see on on the movie um, but I know they never talked to me nobody really ever talked to me and they would meet with John two three times a week and then they would leave but they never even sat at his table they sat adjacent at different tables really and okay you would, would talk to them nobody got in John's space and then John started to communicate with me 
and and he had a, a way of doing things which I, I to this day I I miss the big guy, um, though he had other intentions in life. But uh, like I said, you know, if you don't get love at home, it's going to come. It'll find you somewhere. You'll find it. Yeah. And and the devil comes in all kinds of shapes and sizes. And and to me, right now, he was that was him, and he was waiting there with open arms. Uh, he was a tough guy, I could tell, and I know that he did something that made a lot of money because he, he dressed the best his guys dressed the best the nicest cars but nobody really went to work uh, i know john owned these things these these restaurants um in the bus station where i worked uh, to the right of me was a doorway that would go into the next business that he owned and then to the left was the bar and another doorway to another business in the back behind me was an alleyway okay and uh one day he, he came to talk to me in the back and he said hey and he called me Little Anthony. He never called me by my first name. And as time went on, he really took me under his wing. He got to know me. He was um, one of the first guys in my life to ever ask me, uh, hey, say, Little Anthony, how you doing in school? Uh, I didn't know how to answer that. Nobody ever asked me that before. Uh, I said, I go. He goes, yeah, but I asked you, how you doing? <laughs> I said, well, you know, I'm doing okay. I got, you know. I go to class and he goes, no, you're not doing okay. You're failing math. You're failing science. You're messing up in English. And he knew everything. He knew your grades. Really? He knew my grades. He knew. And, you know, besides all that, I thought all I got out of that was, wow, man, this guy really cares about me. Yeah. That's pretty crazy. And he would make pizzas at the end of the day and he'd make them himself. And he would send them home with me. Go feed your family, you know, give this to your kid, your brothers and sisters. And, and I saw him as a kind man, but I knew people feared him and not people wanted around him. And, and him and Jane, Jeannie was the only one, though she was like four foot something. She was the only one that could tell Big John what to do and where to go. And, and <laughs> she made no bones about it. Um, so I, I was working with him for a while. I remember one time I uh, I'd gotten away from my my warlord friends too. He saw them. Uh, no, the first time was a question I had for him. There was one particular door in that back room that nobody ever used. And I remember asking him, Hey, uh, Mr. Jeep, where does this door go? And I remember him looking back at the door and he's looking up and down. He goes, what door? And I said, this door right here. The one with the handle. He looks at the door and the wall, and he looks at me again. He goes, what door? I don't, I don't see no door there. <laughs> and I said, okay, I get it. All right. The door that don't exist. Uh, nobody used it. And so those were, you know, different times I had with him, what, what those conversations went like. Uh, my first taste of the mafia. There was a time when I was working there, and uh, I'm in the back getting my bus station ready. And the two guys that come on a regular basis came into the restaurant. This time they bought, they brought somebody with them and they sat this guy. And this is the first time I'd ever seen this. They sat this guy down at John's table across from John. Okay. And then one guy sat behind him and another guy sat across from the other table. And there's nobody else here in the restaurant. And I'm working in the back with my bus station. I got the bread warmer and the glasses on, on the side and, and uh, tubs where we put the extra glasses and, you know, the food. So I'm getting my station ready, and I could see that they're talking. 
but I couldn't tell what it was about. And, and John didn't look too happy. And finally, it looked like they came to an agreement. And they get up, and, and uh, I remember the guy just looking a little squirrely. And instead of going out the front door, they start coming back to the, to the, to the bus station where I'm working. And they come in the back room, and the guy didn't say nothing to me. And they go into that door that didn't exist. The first guy went in, then the little guy they brought. The last guy stopped and looked at me. And this is the first time he's ever spoke to me. And he says, hey, little Anthony, if anybody comes out this door, other than the two of us that just went in, that you see here on a regular basis, that other guy comes out, can you put one between the eyes? Ooh. And... To this day, I I don't I don't even know why I asked I I acted the way I did or even reacted, but without a breath I said yeah sure sure I can do that, and he said good and he took out a thirty eight revolver and he put it up on top of the bread warmer under a towel, and they went into that room that didn't exist and I remember looking at the gun and I haven't really felt the gun or held one so I grabbed it. And I was thinking, wow, man, this is pretty cool. Uh, this guy thinks I can handle some business. You know, and I think other people might have thought another something or been afraid of that. But I remember for some strange reason, it was another level of acceptance for me. Wow, man, these guys really trust me. must really like me to give me that kind of, you know, uh, responsibility. Right. So I put it back up on the bread warmer and – I don't know what must have been about 20 minutes. I, I thought it was all day because I was waiting for that guy to come out. I didn't know what he was going to do. And the door opens, and that guy that handed me the gun came out. He says, all right, little Anthony, um, you know uh, Big John's car, the car the caddy out front he drives? I said, yeah. He goes, can you drive? I said, yeah, I can drive. Go get John's keys. They're on his table. Get into that caddy. Drive it around the back. Leave the car running. Pop the trunk. Walk back around the way you came in, around the front of the building, and come back and go to work. Can you do that? I said, yeah, I can do that. I looked out front, and Big John wasn't there, but his keys were on the table. And uh, then he stuck a $100 bill in my pocket. It may have been 200 I don't know, but it was the most money I ever made at one time. And so I went, and I did that. And I walked around the front, came in the back, and business opened up as usual. I never saw that little guy again. I got a pretty good idea what happened. And those two guys disappeared for like a couple of weeks. Then they came back around. And it was never mentioned, never talked about, nothing was ever said. And I think that was, that was, that I would call was my first taste of the mafia. Oh, man. Hello, friends. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to support this podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts. You can rate and review this episode. Also, for those who have asked us how to financially support, you can go to kevinandsteph.com and order one of our books of You Met Her Where. Thank you so much for listening to Tell Us a Good Story. 